It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, it is indeed time to tap into the truth. Joining us today is Cody Stockton. He is the master gunsmith of Master Smith Gunworks, and uh, he's going to be telling us about his unique perspective. First of all, allow me to uh, welcome Cody to the air. And uh, again, Cody, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, it's no problem. All right. Uh, one of the first questions uh, would uh, – think a lot of folks would like to uh, hear is exactly what it was that uh, led you to decide to become a master gunsmith and uh, some of the things that are involved with doing that. Well, it's it's kind of a long, drawn-out process. It's, it's not instant, and if that's what you're looking for, then I, I would definitely not go into that field. Uh, we were always kind of exposed to firearms from a very early age, uh, particularly my grandparents. Uh, and then, of course, my, even my mother was was a very good shooter, at, uh, you know, throughout her life. But anyway, I was actually hurt pretty uh, pretty early on. About 20 years old, I had to have a couple surgeries, and uh, they laid me up for a while. And so, during that time, since it was something I had an interest in, and it something that I thought I would be good at, I, I went into that, did the school. Uh, and, of course, a lot of what goes into gunsmithing, regardless of, what you might read in the uh, in the ads for gunsmith school, I would say probably five percent of what I know I learned through the schooling process. The rest was just you know by actually doing it. Uh, you know, it, and it took quite a while before it actually became somewhat of a I guess a profession. And 
course, I will, I will be the very first one to tell you that there is a whole lot more that I don't know than I do, and that's, I think, any gunsmith will probably tell you the exact same thing. All right. All right. Uh, one of the additional things that you have certification to do besides just being a master gunsmith is you also certified to teach a carry concealed permit class in the state of Tennessee. Is that correct? At one point, I actually let that drop probably about two years ago because it seems like there are so many of them now uh, that can do it a whole lot cheaper than I could, you know, with their own range and everything. And to be honest, uh, you know, I, I was not. I probably wasn't made to be a teacher, if if, if that explains it very well at all. But right. uh, at one time, yes. All right. Well, it's uh, part of being certified to do that, and of course, being a master gunsmith, which uh, means you're not just some the equivalent of a shade tree mechanic. You're not just some guy hanging around waiting for somebody to bring in your guns. You also have to be very conscious of changes in the laws, and as they come up. And you get uh, a lot of visits by members of the ATF and uh, FBI? Uh, yeah, ATF particularly. Uh, and, of course, now it's known as the BATF. They almost get a little ticked if you call them ATF these days. But, uh, yeah, it's a annual inspection uh, is, is the general rule. However, you know, that, that by, no, by no means is that your limit. Uh, particularly, and I don't really... Uh, have a whole lot to do with the machine gun and destructive device uh, market anymore. But if, per se, you were, then, of course, the uh, the checks are a little more frequent, a little more detailed. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's something that you've always got to have in the back of your mind, particularly the laws, because even if you don't deal with the, you know, with the destructive devices or the, the machine guns, as people will, I guess, is, it's the most ubiquitous statement, uh, you know, it's very, very easy to get yourself backed into a corner where you either have broken the law or, you know, are about to break the law and have no idea that that's what you're about to do. Very, very easy to happen. So as a general statement, it's pretty safe to assume that uh, you spend a lot of time yourself keeping track of any new changes and studying previous laws that are still on the books, correct? Particularly the uh, laws around the hardware itself, you know, what is legal, what isn't, what is a gray area, what, uh, you know, what municipalities look at that gray area as a black area, uh, because the laws aren't very clear in some ways. And it's it's probably at least once a day I get a call asking about a, you know, an actual physical gun law. Is my gun legal or is it illegal? And it's it is so gray and so poorly publicized that, you know, there are probably folks listening right now that have firearms that are breaking the law and have no idea, and there are folks who probably think they're breaking the law and really aren't. Right. Well, that kind of leads into my very next question, which uh, is basically in your experience of doing this, uh, really how informed do you think that the majority of your customers are and maybe even law enforcement officers that you've encountered while you've been doing your job? Most gun owners, I would say about 90% of them are not very well informed as far as the laws concerning the hardware or the carry laws. I would say that the same uh, percentage of folks that have carry permits don't really understand the laws. And if we wanted to get into the law enforcement thing, I have a whole lot of friends who are police officers and, and 
probably quite a few of them listening right now. And unfortunately, most of them will probably admit that the laws are gray and differ so much that they're them themselves. They're not very well informed. Uh, we actually I had a situation a couple of weeks back when we were uh, discussing barrel length on a shotgun with a police officer, and not one that I know and not one local, but uh, he had been pointed my direction to ask the question. And, you know, at that time, his view or the information he had been given was completely inaccurate and, as far as I know, wasn't actually even accurate for any state or municipality in the U.S. But that's what he had thought for the last 10 years of his career. Right. Well, you know, as far as uh, local police officers, if they don't work on a national level, you can almost excuse some of that just because they have so many different things that have to keep on their plate. And knowing down to exact detail, when you look at how ridiculous some of these laws have been written in the first place, and we'll get into that a little bit more here in a little bit, uh, you can almost give these guys a pass just because they're doing the best they can, and they've got a lot of other things on their plate to keep track of. Uh, uh, as far as uh, some of the really stupid laws that have been passed, though, that you're aware of, uh, go ahead and give us a few examples that you can think of, uh, just, just in your opinion, the dumbest laws that have been passed. I would say the dumbest law that, that was ever passed, and of course it was repealed in 2004 with the expiration of the assault ban, uh, assault rifle ban, but the bayonet lug as a, I guess what you would call an, uh, an aggressive device or a uh, offensive device. Uh, and I joke around, I've never heard of the drive by bayonetting, but you know that that's one of the big things that I've heard. Like Pelosi has has mentioned so many times that it's it's almost like does she know what it is? But you know that was one of the things that they that they really pushed when they were defining an assault rifle, in which. I'd like to point out that the NATO definition of an assault rifle is a lightweight, lightweight intermediate caliber uh, select fire rifle. And select fire, of course, is either semi-automatic fire or the shooter can turn it to a three-round burst or a full auto or, of course, there's some more unique two-round, four-round, five-round burst. But the point is, more than one shot with one pull of the trigger. So anything that is not a uh, select fire weapon, by definition, is not a assault rifle to begin with. So you kind of get into, okay, well, what, are, what is the definition of an assault rifle, you know, in this country? And, of course, there's a phrase or, I guess, a term that's been coined by folks in the gun industry, any black rifle. I mean, these folks see a black rifle, and it's evil. So they, you know, they start picking out the aspects of that gun that they can put into a law as, I guess, a... Uh, an attribute that would determine it to be illegal. Uh, the other stupid law is the way that uh, the way that parts kits and whatnot are uh, imported. Uh, back in the 80s, there was in the very early 80s, there was very few uh, AK-47, AK-74 rifles in the U.S. There were very, very few. Most of them were Vietnam bringbacks, and then there were a few dealer samples. But the biggest thing is. Uh, with these parts kits, they come in, and it's not a gun. It is, by definition anyway, it's it's parts of a gun, and the receiver's destroyed or missing, and now you can't have a barrel. But a gun can be made of it. The thing is, I've probably got parts kits that I've gotten here in the last couple of weeks that, for, you know, for a Kalashnikov rifle, that 
contain all of the full auto parts. And I will be the first to tell you that it does not take a gunsmith to make a machine gun. It, there's not a lot to it. I, I don't think I've ever really told anybody what goes into it just because of the legal aspect of it, but there's not a whole lot to it. So these folks are wringing their hands about, you know, bayonet lugs or magazine capacity, this, that, and the other. But instead of focusing on that, you know, uh, it's the things that are obvious, at least to me, obvious that they tend to ignore. And uh, then, of course, probably the biggest one is, is the way that we look at magazine capacity, which I think that's probably the big hot button right now anyway. Right. Well, you know, when it comes to magazine capacity, uh, you can see a legitimate point on how many rounds do you really need to have. But on the other hand, if you are talking about a legitimate self-defense situation, uh, you've got somebody who's very nervous and they're firing, and if they have a low-caliber round, uh, it may take uh, more than a couple of shots before you hit anything, and it may take more than one to put down an aggressive person. So um, I personally think that the uh, high-capacity magazines aren't uh, something that we should readily just set back and say, okay, let's give that away. But, yeah, you're saying basically that right now it is entirely legal to ship in from outside of the U.S. kits that probably with uh, a few tools, uh, buying of a couple additional parts and spending a few minutes on YouTube, you could probably build a full auto. And that's completely oh, yeah. legal as far as getting the parts in. Oh, yeah, I, and I'm sure there's tons of gun owners right now probably screaming at their computer, but, yes, that, that's the case. There is it's Very little goes into it. Uh, it. It would probably shock most people to know how little, but uh, at the same time, it's it's also not what I would call a scourge of, you know, the American community. It's, I mean, you very seldom do you hear of a crime committed with a machine gun. I mean, it, it doesn't happen a lot, and I guess the other reason is that that I did want to point out, is parts kits aren't cheap. Assault rifles are not cheap. High-capacity handguns are not cheap. If you want to buy something new, you may as well go ahead and plan on, at the bare minimum, back before, you know, all the hysteria, you know, probably $500 for something of quality for a handgun at best, and then for a rifle, you're looking at close to 900 Of course, now everything's blown out of proportion, but, you know, it's, it's starting to get back down to that point, it looks like, but, yeah, it's, it's not that you have what I guess you you know you would call the the game bangers out there. They don't all have AR-15s and Uzis and Glocks because I don't know very many folks in that I guess in that profession of uh, of being a criminal that could afford any of those firearms. Most of the folks that have those are people that just like to shoot them. I mean that's that's the truth. Or carry them. I mean that's that's true too for self-defense. Right, and uh, there's actually a series of rifles, uh, if my understanding is correct here, where it becomes illegal to put a pistol grip on them, but they're still completely legal without the pistol grips. Uh, uh, first of all, is is that true, or am I misinformed on that? No, you, you kind of are, and that's that's where you get into the state by state thing. There are some states where a forward pistol grip is illegal. There are some states where a folding stock on a rifle is illegal. Tennessee is not one of those states. Uh, same with a shotgun. But there are states where that is considered a uh, felony to possess that. Uh, one of the other things is, and of course this is kind of dumb too, but 
handguns with uh, accessory rails on their fronts, particularly semi-automatics. Uh, there was a time when there was a few companies that were producing forward pistol grips for those so that you could actually have two hands on a handgun, uh, you know, independent of each other. And by the letter of law, that's illegal now, too. So it's it's uh, it varies from state to state and even, in some cases, from city to city. But, uh, yeah, that, that is true in some regards, particularly California. Well, uh, in your experience having done a lot of shooting uh, from both being a gun enthusiast and from having to test fire uh, on uh, guns that you've worked on, is there really any significant uh, advantage to having uh, a pistol grip and a forward position on a rifle or not as far as its destructive capability and its accuracy or anything like that? Uh, as far as accuracy and destructive capability, absolutely not. Uh, personally, I do not care for forward pistol grips. I, I don't shoot well with them. It wasn't what I started out with, and I just can't find one that I feel comfortable with. However, uh, my wife who shoots, she she does. But the only thing that I think the benefit of it is, I guess there's, it, that's twofold. The actual benefit is some folks do get a little more stability when they're shooting with a forward grip like that. The other benefit is it looks cool. That's what the big thing is. I'd say probably almost 100% of people got one because it looked cool or it came with the gun. Right. So basically just a matter of personal taste with your firearm that makes no difference whatsoever as far as public safety. Is that a relatively That's accurate statement? That is completely accurate. All right. Well, you know, it sounds to me like it's pretty safe to say that the majority of people who are riding and passing these laws that we already have have absolutely no real working knowledge of firearms. Um, it's it's mind-boggling to think that people will get up and give these speeches and make national – take the national stage to argue about how important it is to do this. And then, like you said, we have gun kits that are coming in from outside of the U.S. that would be a, a much greater risk to the public safety. Uh, what are uh, your primary thoughts and feelings when it comes to this current new push for the so-called gun control laws? Uh, you know, really, I, I guess I'm a little unique for you know, gun proponents because I think that, yes, there are things that need to happen. I think that had the laws been written a little differently or had, you know, even on a local level, had the laws been different or whatnot, you know, some of this that's happened might have been prevented, but at the same time, this stuff's been happening for the last 20 years, and it's just, I guess it's convenient to, to put it on the news and make a big deal out of it, but uh, you know, really, my thoughts are that most folks are that own firearms are pretty responsible folks. But if you want to carry a gun, if you know, in public, then there should be a level of proficiency with it and a determined amount of maturity and respect for that firearm that that must be met or attained before any kind of permit is issued. Of course, permits are issued on a state-by-state -state basis, and, of course, some cities issue permits. But, you know, it, the, the rules are all pretty much the same. When you go to a permit class, don't point it at anybody. Don't, you know, it, it, it's all simple, very basic stuff that 
personally, I knew by six years old, and I think most folks, you know, that that have a household where firearms are present, they know that sort of thing. But uh, as far as determining if somebody fit to carry a firearm, I can I could probably point out that most of the folks that uh, most of the folks that are issued permits, you know, some of them carry, some of them don't, but there are a lot of them that really have no business carrying a gun at that time. A little more training or a little more, uh, I guess, a little more background information would be needed before I would feel confident in putting my name on a permit issued to a person. But uh, I think that's kind of the problem, and I think maybe the maybe the uh, solution would be to kind of go towards a nationalized permit or, you know, keep it on a state basis but have everything kind of uh, on the same page as far as permits. Uh, there are some states where just by living there and not being a felon, you qualify to carry a firearm loaded in public. And that's, I mean, how many folks do you know that aren't felons that you would not trust carrying a firearm loaded around your kids or you? So I think that maybe a little more background information, maybe a little more check into the folks who are applying for these things, uh, you know, that. That's probably something that would really need to be done. I don't think limiting magazine capacities, I don't think taking permits out of the equation or even the ultimate taking the guns away, as it were, I don't think any of that's going to do anything. Uh, I think I saw the other day a interview that Bloomberg did where he was talking about the, I guess, the merits of a double-barrel shotgun over, I guess, some of the tactical shotguns and assault rifles that folks have for protection. You know, you look at it this way, a 3-inch, 12-gauge Magnum uh, buckshot with double lot's got about 15 pellets in it. Okay, you've got two barrels with two shots in it. Well, it's 30 pellets. And a AR-15 with 30-round magazine has 30 slugs, roughly the same weight, actually a little bit lighter. Uh, you know, it's just you've got 30 individual shots. But you start splitting hairs as to what as to what is deadly and what isn't. And the folks who are determining that don't really know. I don't think that the folks who are trying to decide what is actually safe and what isn't, I don't know if they've actually consulted any of the industry people. I know they surely haven't contacted many Smith or salesmen, but, you know, it's there's a lot that needs to be done, and there's a whole lot that doesn't need to be done. So basically, uh, do you think that... Uh people within the industry, uh, such as yourself, uh, would en masse uh, be for just a single national system for issuing permits, or uh, do you think it's still lean more towards the state-by-state? You know, I think at least the state politicians would probably lean towards the state-by-state, but I think that the folks in the industry, as long as it didn't, you know, hamper a citizen's ability to carry a firearm uh, to any great degree. I think Tennessee has great gun laws. You don't carry to, you know, a uh, government building. You don't carry into a school. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Um, You know, I think if the nationalized standards were that, I don't see that many folks would have a problem with that. But you start getting into something like New Jersey where, I mean, I don't know of anybody who's ever been issued in the state of New Jersey a permit personally, uh, and where it's even illegal to carry an assembled firearm in your vehicle uh, without ammunition. I mean, it's you'll have to be pretty specific about what the 
the rules and regulations are, but as long as it wasn't too limiting, I don't see that, you know, most dealers, most gunsmiths, or even most shooters would have a problem with it. Right. Well, you know, I have to say that for the longest time, I think the biggest issue that the entire permitting uh, process has had when you look at state to state is it's way too easy for certain members pushing a certain agenda to write a law like what you pointed out with New Jersey to make it so difficult to attain a permit that there's no real reason why they would ever issue one. So maybe a, a national standard would be better, but uh, as far as looking at weapons like the AR-15 and trying to base, it's, is there really any reason specifically why an AR-15 is more dangerous than a Glock 9mm? A longer range, and, you know, we can start talking about, you know, ballistics. Uh, there was actually a doctor with the government, Fackler, who did a good report on ballistics and what it does to the flesh, uh, you know, upon impact and whatnot. But, you know, the average shooting distance for, you know, person to person, not including military, uh, is about seven yards. And at seven yards, at least from my perspective, it's not going to matter if I've got an AR-15 or a 9mm it's it's going to happen, and it's it's got, not going to be good for the receiving party. No, I, I don't think so. And it's as far as really the only thing that you could say that would put that AR-15 above, say, a Glock 9mm would be magazine capacity and range. And there are very few cases where, you know, somebody used that extra range to commit a crime. Uh, you know, a lot of folks don't know that up until about 1982, a person could go buy a fully automatic M16 for about $450, and that was after 1970. So between that period, you could, you know, just about anybody could go and buy one. And I, I can't think of a single circumstance where there was a mass shooting with an M16, which, of course, an M16 is just the military variant of an AR-15, uh, except it's fully automatic, of course, but... So I think that kind of speaks for itself. In a lot of ways, most of the crimes are committed with handguns. Handguns are generally cheaper, easier to transport, conceal, and whatnot. Um, and the way that handguns are made today, it's not uncommon to have something that weighs 20 ounces that can also contain 17, 18 rounds. And that's, you know, 18 rounds is more than enough to, to inflict a lot of damage, particularly in a small, confined space such as a movie theater or a school or any place like that. Uh, you know, it's it's not that, in my mind anyway, you, you can't say that the AR-15 is so much more dangerous or so much more evil. Of course, it looks a little more threatening. It's bigger. It's, it's got all the bells and whistles and all that. But most folks will have to admit that most of the bells and whistles on their guns, they probably never even turned them on or used them. And uh, as far as I know, I don't think that there's been very many crimes where somebody's slapped up night vision on an AR-15 and went hunting people, as it were. So, yeah. Again, the AR-15, like you said, just looks scarier. So I guess that means for the uh, purposes of uh, appealing to the public, trying to get them on your side for banning a weapon, it's a good place to start just because it looks scarier. Uh, we've got uh, just a little bit under four minutes left on today's show. Uh, 
had hoped to get into a little bit. Uh, one other thing, we don't just have to worry about lawmakers, but judges too. Uh, you had uh, talked about previously with me, if we can briefly hit the highlights of it, I'll let you go over it because you know the details. But the case of the uh, the gunsmith who made a modification uh, on a gun owner, it dropped it oh, yeah. at a gun range. Uh, go ahead if you don't mind. Yeah, it was a, it was a northwestern state, uh, a gunsmith who was very well established, very reputable. Um, and he does pretty much the same type of business that I do, you know, hunting rifles, and he does the tactical rifles and whatnot. But he actually uh, had done some work to an AR-15, if I'm not mistaken, and there was a malfunction, and somebody was injured, they were shot. And instead of the shooter who had ill-advisedly placed that rifle locked, loaded, unsafety on a bench, not sitting completely on it, hanging halfway off. Instead of holding that gun owner responsible for what happened, uh, it was actually the gunsmith who had done a trigger job on that same rifle, reducing it from about five and a half pounds down to about three and a half pounds. Uh, he actually ended up losing pretty much everything that he had. And in reality, there was nothing that he did that was illegal or unsafe. Uh, you know, that gun was no more likely to go off being dropped with a five-and-a-half-pound factory trigger than it was with a three-and-a-half-pound Smith trigger. But the way that the judge looked at it, the way that, I guess, the uh, you know the folks in that area looked at it, he was an easy target, he was a scapegoat, and he probably didn't get the representation that he should have had, and... He lost it. I mean, everything. I know that he's not even a gunsmith anymore. I, I think he was close to retiring age, too, is what makes it so bad. Yeah, it just seems to me like a case of an activist judge who had, saw an opportunity to take one more person out of the equation who's out there making it easier for people to own guns on a private basis and enjoy the usage. Uh, it, it's absolutely mind-boggling to me that that the owner – of the gun who drops it unsafety is not the person held responsible uh, for the accident. They didn't go after this guy. They didn't go after the gun range owner. They didn't even go after the gun manufacturer, which you see in a lot of these cases. But they went after the gunsmith who made a completely legal modification that had little to no bearing whatsoever on the actual accident. That's amazing. Yeah, really well, all right. Well, we're into the last 60 seconds of the show, so we'll go ahead and start wrapping up. I want to thank you again uh, for coming on to the show, Cody. Very much appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Thank you. And, all right, thank you. And, again, for all you folks out there listening, I want to remind you, don't take my word for it. Definitely don't take their word for it. Take a few seconds, do some research on your own, and use your brain. That's what you have it for. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Tap into the Truth. Thank you very much for tuning in, and we'll be back next Sunday at the same time. Everybody have a great Sunday afternoon. Thanks. All right. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.